Well, you can be making your way to 1 John in your Bible. Just as a reminder, if you missed any of our messages in Ecclesiastes, they're all on the website. Um, a lot of them even have the notes, uh, the manuscript that goes along with them for your own uh, study time. And we'd love for you to be able to access them whenever you need. It was a joy to go through that book together. And now I'm excited to embark on this journey in First John. It's a short book, it's five chapters, but there is so much for us to learn from this book. I'm, I'm excited to get into it. Now, I want to start, because I think it's helpful when we start any new kind of study together, that we kind of give an overview. So we, most of you probably read First John, and I want to take a step back and just kind of remind ourselves of some basic things about the book. So who wrote the book of First John? You might guess John, right? But there's actually a bigger debate, and we're not going to really get into it all, but there's a bigger debate than you might realize about which John it was that wrote this book. When it comes down to it, my suspicion is that the guy who wrote the Gospel of John also wrote First John, Second John, Third John, uh, and, and more, actually. Um, it's interesting <clears throat> In ancient writings, it's actually really common for the author to omit themselves from the account that they're writing or to use third-person descriptions in order to disguise their identity. So fun fact here, the Apostle John, so the guy that walked with Jesus, the Apostle John is mentioned in every gospel by name except the Gospel of John. Fun fact there. Um, which kind of helps us understand maybe who wrote it. In the Gospel of John, though, the author uses an identifying phrase of the one whom Jesus loved. You might remember that, especially probably most prominently when he's on the cross and he turns to the one whom he loved and asks him to take care of his mother, that sort of thing. He actually refers to this person five different times by this way, by saying the one whom I loved. And we know from context it's not talking about Peter or any of the, others, uh, the other disciples because the one whom Jesus loved actually interacts with Peter at some points in the gospel. And so we know it's not Peter. Scholars believe that James, so Peter, James, and John, those were kind of the big three that you hear a lot about. James, was, um, who was John's brother, probably died too early to have written the gospel of John because Acts chapter 12, verse 2 kind of talks about his, uh, his death. And in the final chapter of the Gospel of John, the author explicitly states the disciple whom Jesus loved is the author of that book. So this is the only Gospel of John that claims to be written by an eyewitness itself. Some of the earliest Christians that we have in record of writing and reflecting on these things, they claimed that the eyewitness that's referred to is the Apostle John. So who was John? Well, he was a fisherman by trade, you might remember when Jesus came and called him, he was fishing. Just like a lot of other disciples that Jesus called to himself. Uh, Jesus, or John rather, according to the Gospels, was one of the first disciples to follow Jesus. In fact, John was one of Jesus' closest disciples. And you see this, there are three times in the Gospels where Peter, James, and John got to witness things 
that Jesus did that nobody else got to see. So they were special in that way. Jesus called them, invited them in to special things. In Mark chapter 5, we see these guys were privy to watching Jesus raise Jairus' daughter from the dead. They're the only three. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus called these three guys up the mountain to be transfigured where he talked with uh, Moses and Elijah and was glorified physically and and, uh, obviously. And then in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus goes to pray in the garden you know, the night that he was betrayed. And who did he take with him? Peter, James, and John specifically. The apostle Paul then refers to these same three guys, Peter, James, and John, as pillars of the church, the early church, because they played such a vital role in supporting and building it up. So Peter, James, and John. In fact, you you might remember this. Sometimes there was dispute in the early church. Things needed to be sorted through. There was disunity, things, people doing things that they really shouldn't be doing. Who did Paul call on? Who did the early church look to? It was these guys, Peter, James, and John. Church tradition, thousands of years of church tradition also tells us that John wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote the epistles, which are 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these letters to the churches. And then he also wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos, Patmos specifically. So, where did he write it? So we, we kind of think we know who wrote it, um, a little bit about him. He wrote it from, um, actually, the area of Ephesus, in somewhere between 80 and 95, 80, 80 and 95. We're not totally sure in there. But it was sometime after a lot of the Christians departed from Jerusalem um, when, before the destruction of Rome. Okay? So he was out before then, and he probably wrote this in that area, which I think is interesting because if you look through the first, or the, actually chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, Ephesus is listed along with several other churches in that area, and we believe John wrote that book as well. So you may be sitting there thinking, man, this is kind of boring. Why are we talking about the authorship of this book? It's John. It says his name right there in my Bible. What does this matter? Well, I hope you can understand that knowing the author is an important part of understanding his or her writings. So we get to know their background. We get to, if, if you read an article from someone who was born and raised in the city of Chicago about planting corn, you may kind of take it with a grain of salt, right? But if you read an article from a farmer who was raised as a farmer and was in a tractor since birth and all these things, you're probably going to gravitate towards trusting their information more. And so it matters who the author is, of, especially of scriptural accounts. We get a deeper understanding of what he's saying in these verses when we know the author of the letter. We can know his prior contact with Jesus Christ himself, uh, his involvement with the ministry of the early church, and also just what he's saying in general here. Um, All of these things give validation and clarity to what we read in the text. Let's read a few verses together this morning. We're going to really get into the meat of it next Sunday. Uh, This is kind of an overview and an intro into the book of 1 John. And I I want to give us a sort of a bird's eye view of what we're getting into together. So I, but specifically, I want to read verses 1 through 10 this morning. 
So 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Did you see that if-then statement right there? But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we've not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. This is just a taste of what we're going to be looking at in the weeks to come. I want to ask you a question. If I was to ask you, maybe not write it down because you don't all have pens, but think about the three things in your life, three things specifically that are most important to you, what would they be? Take just a moment and think through that. Think, what are the three most important things in your life? Some of you might say, my house is important to me, my truck is important to me, my gun collection is important to me, our savings account is important, our family photos are important, our special keepsakes of family members or whoever it might be. Some of you went the real spiritual route and said, well, my Bible is very important to me, as it should be. Maybe your family members themselves are who you would put on that list. When we start to consider the things that are really genuinely important, both in this life and the next life, I think we find that what's really important is not even things at all. It's relationships. It's people. God has designed us to live that way, friends. He's designed us to live in community, in relationship with one another. On top of that, he's designed us to live in relationship with him. With him. We were created in his likeness. We were made in his image, Genesis tells us. And in John's first letter, he plainly tells us the truth about relationships, as we'll see. And he shows us how to have relationships that are meaningful and real both now on this earth and for eternity. The first few verses that we just looked at, they make the point that Jesus is the central figure to understanding and having a relationship with God. That's who those first four verses or so are getting at, if you, if you didn't pick up on that. It's talking about Jesus Christ. John is saying this guy who was from the beginning, who we've seen and we've heard and we've touched, he's the one that we celebrate. He's the one that is central at the very center of a relationship with God. Without him, you have not a relationship with God. He's the life that was made manifest. He is the light, as he says, that expels the darkness. 
So in just this opening to his letter, he directs our attention to both Jesus' humanity and his divinity. He highlights those things. And we're going to talk more about that next week. And you can tell just from these, look at this first, the first three verses are one sentence. John is pumped up here. He's excited about telling them, all the churches in Ephesus and the surrounding areas who would read this, he was excited about telling them who Jesus was and his experience with Christ. I wonder if there's maybe something in there for us as well. As we get into this book, you're going to notice, though, that John's writing style is quite a bit different from the the poetic writing that we just went through in Ecclesiastes. It's pretty different from Paul's way of writing as well. His style here in 1 John and really 2nd and 3rd, but especially 1 John, it's almost like circular rather than linear. So Paul really kind of has a point and he just plows his way right to it. And I like that about Paul. But John here is different from that. It's almost circular and it's kind of like a loosely structured sermon than it is like uh, any, any other New Testament epistle. Okay? I almost think we should think of it as, as a, a musical piece. Okay, so music, as you could probably tell this morning as we sang our songs, a lot of times, especially more modern songs, they have a refrain or a chorus, and they have verses, they have bridges sometimes, but a lot of times you'll sing the verse and then you'll sing the chorus. You'll sing another verse and then you'll go back to the chorus. You'll sing another verse, you see, see how it goes, so that a song is structured in that way. And John kind of does the same sort of thing. He'll hit a point and he'll go away from it for a little while. He'll talk about some other things. And then he'll circle back around to that point and begin to drive it home. And so I think that this is, if we were going to say it that way, that the book of John can be looked at musically, what would be the refrain? What would be the chorus of the book? I think it's this. How can we know that we are in Christ? You want to know that you're really genuinely a believer? That's the chorus of this book. And John goes back to it. He'll talk about something and he'll go back to how you know. How you can know. Do our beliefs and do our actions agree with our claims that we're really a Christian? If that's the chorus of this kind of musical piece, I think some of the verses would be expanding on who Jesus is, Christology, walking in the light, walking in love, the need to reject worldly ideas and culture, and also abiding in Christ. Those are kind of the verses that he hits on and then goes back to the refrain. So it's kind of circular rather than following the straight path. So don't get lost in it. Stay together with us, and we're going to get through it and be blessed by it. And as I've said, tradition tells us that John wrote five books in the New Testament. So the Gospel the three epistles, and then also the book of Revelation. I read this this week. I thought it was really interesting the way it was condensed this way. And it's this. John wrote his gospel to convert sinners. God wrote, sorry, John wrote the epistles to confirm the saints. And he wrote the book of Revelation to coronate or crown the Savior. That's cool. John actually does something that's really helpful. I don't know if you've ever caught this before. But in each one of his writings, he plainly tells us why he's writing that, his purpose in writing it. So in the Gospel of John, in chapter 20, verse 31, he says it. He says, for the Gospel, he says, these things are written 
so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believe, by believing you may have life in his name. That's why John wrote, so that we might believe in Jesus and have life in his name. In Revelation, he quotes Jesus in verse one, chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Write therefore these things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take after, place after this. That's why he was writing the book of Revelation. Things that he has seen. Here in 1 John, it's actually a little more complicated. There's four purposes. He, he writes four different times. He says, this is why I'm writing. Chapter 1, verse 4. We've looked at one of them. He writes so that our joy or your joy may be complete. In chapter 2, verse 1, he writes so that you may not sin. In chapter 2, verse 26, he writes about those who are trying to deceive you. And in chapter 5, verse 13, he writes that you may know you have eternal life. In fact, John, in this letter, says, I write 13 different times. Kids, did you hear that? John said, I write 13 different times in this short letter. Why would that matter? Why would it matter that John says, well, I'm writing you for this reason. I'm writing you to do something. Because when he says, uh, I write that many times, he wants, us to, he wants to be absolutely certain that his readers understand what he is writing about and why he is writing it. So he's reminding them. It's almost like that chorus that he goes back to. Hey, I'm writing these things for this reason again. Pay attention. Don't lose sight of this. John's expressed purpose in writing this book was to promote full joy. That was the first one. To prevent sin, to protect the church from false teachers, and to provide assurance of salvation. All within the context of the family of God. All within the context of the church. I had a phone conversation this week, just kind of randomly called and uh, had a good conversation with him. And it kind of started, you know, taking a spiritual turn. It, was, it didn't start that way. We started taking a spiritual turn. And it got to the point where we were talking about the Lord. And I just flat out asked him. I said, look, because he, he made a comment, which made me ask the question. He said, I said, well, if, if, you, if you died, are you sure that you'd be okay with God? And he said, well, yeah, I think I've got that squared away, I think is how he put it. Well, first off, that's kind of a, a flippant way to address that issue. Um, but he said, I think I've got a square away. And I said, you just think? He said, yeah, I think so. I said, well, are you sure? And there was a long pause. A really long pause. You know, I, I've heard this more than just a few times. Um, people who say they're Christians, who think about standing before God when they die, and they're just not sure. They're not sure that when they stand before him, whether they're okay with him or not, or whether he's okay with them or not. Let me assure you today, as John is going to do throughout this book, in wonderful fashion, you can know that you have eternal life. There, we can have confidence that we have eternal life. Guys, God is not some carnival game attendant forcing you to knock down just the right amount of bottles to win the prize. Okay? He's not this loan officer with a complicated checklist of things you have to perform and do in order to get what you want. 
That's not who God is. He's offering salvation and it's real and it's eternal. And according to Jesus in John chapter three, it hinges on one thing in particular. Belief. Belief. If a person believes in the only son of God, if they believe in the son, he says they're going to have eternal life. Let's see what flip over to the gospel of John chapter three. John chapter 3. Just in this section, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he, is, he, he hits on this idea over and over and over. Look at verse 15. Whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have eternal life. Verse 18, whoever believes in me is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And then this chapter ends with John kind of expanding on this just a little bit. And he says that belief then leads to something. Your belief will lead to obedience. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. That's consistent with what Jesus has been saying the whole time. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, if you believe that he does what he says he can do, then According to Jesus, as John records it here, that's going to produce something. It's that if-then statement that Jason talked about. If you believe, it's going, it will lead you to obedience. It will lead you to obey what he's telling you to do. To refuse to believe and to choose to disobey, as verse 36 says, is to choose God's wrath, is to choose condemnation on ourselves. So belief and obedience, they go hand in hand in Jesus' theology. In the book of James, we see the author there, James, he, he drives this truth home even deeper. And he talks about faith and works in chapter 2. He makes it crystal clear in, that, in those verses. And he says, that, he says that if you say you have faith, but it doesn't translate, it doesn't come out into how you live... Guess what that says about the faith that you say you have? It means you're lying and that faith is wrong. It is, it is not true. It is useless is the word he uses. It is not real. Belief is absolutely necessary. And our works done for the glory of God, they authenticate or they prove our faith. In fact, in verse 18 of chapter 2, James says... I'll show you my faith by my works. I'll show it to you. I don't have to just preach it to you. I'm going to show you my faith by my obedience. And so that's, I think, what faith looks like in action. Belief which leads to obedience. If you say you believe, but it never leads you to obey the words of God, James actually says that you are no better than a demon. I realize that that is harsh. That's exactly what he says in verses 17 through 19. Just listen as I read James chapter 2. So then faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. 
But someone will say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even though the demons believe in the truth about God, they believe that God is one. They believe in truth about God. Their belief has never been translated into obedience. And so therefore they do not have saving faith. Their belief in God does not equal faith because there's no obedience that it leads to. So let's pause for just a moment because I realize this is is hard to hear a little bit this morning. Let's just pause for a moment with this in mind and ask ourselves this question. Do I claim to believe in the truth about God and do I claim to be a Christian? If I say that I believe, do my actions And do my thoughts authenticate or prove that I really have saving faith? If I claim to be a follower of Jesus, do I obey his word? Or does my life continue on with no perceivable change at all? Do I show my faith by my works? Based on how and what John writes in this first epistle... These are the kind of hard questions that he wants us to be asking ourselves. If we say this, is this true of us or not? If If it is, praise God, let's build on that and continue. If it's not, don't lose hope. Jesus still rescues. Listen to chapter 2, verses 4 through 6 of 1 John. And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are like him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Brothers and sisters, friends, you can't compare your walk with another person and be satisfied. They're not the standard. You can't look to the pastor that you listen to on the radio and love who shares all kinds of awesome truth. You cannot compare your walk with theirs. What's the comparison? What's the standard here? The way in which Jesus walked. That's the way we have to be walking. Am I saying with my mouth that I know him while my lifestyle says the opposite. If this is as convicting to you as it is to me, don't lose hope. His word was written so that we might obtain, we might receive eternal life. Jesus really did pay your sin debt. And he really does desire a personal relationship with you. And his word was written so that we might be convinced that we have eternal life. John has written this, and as we go, it's almost this crescendo towards the end in chapter 5, and he says, this is how you know you have eternal life. So the Gospel of John was written so that we may have eternal life. First John was written so that we might know we have eternal life. If you doubt God's love for you, or if you doubt your love for God, I really think that First John is going to settle the matter. It's going to point out 
whether you have saving faith or hypocritical faith. By the end of our time together in this book, I really think and I certainly pray that you will know whether you belong to his family as his child or whether you're still walking in darkness. And, and really, isn't it better to know the truth one way or the other? Isn't it better than being deceived? And this is why we need to be clear, not only in how we preach, but in our evangelism. Isn't it better to have, to know, have someone know that they're lost than to be deceived into thinking that they're saved and right with God? That's what 1 John is going to do for us. It's better even if we know the truth. It's better if it hurts to know the truth. Remember last week, I talked about the voyage of the Dawn Shredder and uh, Eustace being turned back into a dragon. He was talking about the pain that it caused. In the movie, he explains it as how like it's a good kind of a hurt, like almost when like a thorn is removed from your foot. You guys ever had a thorn or a splinter in your foot? It hurts to get that little guy out. But when it's out, there's relief. There's comfort. In this book, John is going to expose those who profess Christ but don't really know him. And he's going to assure those who do know Christ but still kind of doubt their salvation sometimes. Here's, here's something that's interesting that I read this week too. It's possible to say that you're a Christian and not actually be saved. But it's also possible to really be a Christian and to doubt sometimes. And so 1 John was written so that we might know that we have eternal life. What a blessing from God to give us this kind of assurance. I can't wait to dig into this more with you. But if you're sitting there today and you're thinking, man, I, I don't know. Maybe you're like my friend. And you say, well, I, I think, I hope. You can know for sure. And I'd love to talk with you more about that. Um, if you want to hang around, you can talk with me. And, uh, and I'll share some more scripture with you. If you want to give me a call or a text this week and set something up, I'll meet with you too. Don't go until bedtime tonight. If you are not certain, don't fall asleep tonight. Call me. Call Jason. Call one of our elders and talk with us more. First John, God's word was given so that we would believe and that we can know we have eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, this is a great assurance, and it's not one that we even deserve. It's not one that we've worked hard enough to get. We also recognize that you're not that carnival attendant, making it super difficult. Lord, it hinges on belief. And so I pray, Lord, for those who are listening this morning, even for my own heart, Lord, I pray that you would help our unbelief. Show us the truth, even when it hurts. Do the things that you need to do to get our attention. And Lord, that's a dangerous prayer. But I pray it for myself and for, my, for the church and for my friends that are here. Do what's necessary to get our attention. Lord, because we don't want to be people that walk around and say that we're one thing, but everybody can see that we're not really that. Help us to walk in the light. Help us to walk in the way that you have walked. It is impossible for us to do that in our own strength. And so, Spirit, we need you. 
Jesus Christ, we need you to overcome our own nature in order to live rightly. We know and believe that you will do that in us as we believe and obey. And Lord, I pray that you would make obedience, obedience so joyful and so full of pleasure. Like we looked at last week, just like the, the sweet honey from a comb. Lord, we would take so much joy in, in obe- obeying your word. Lord, go with us now and help us to not be comfortable until we sh- are sure. Because you provide that assurance and we thank you for it. May we go to the ends of the earth, as Jesus told us to, because of the confidence we have in the assurance in Christ. And so we pray these things in his name. Amen.